Welcome to Learn and Lag, a podcast about yesterday's Learned League questions and answers. I'm Amanda. And I'm George. Amanda is in Zephyr A, and I am in Zephyr B. This is season 30 for me, and season 26 for Amanda. And this is day 12 of season 98, which we are recording on day 13, if you notice that we were late. Question one asks us, uh, what color skin is the uh, protagonist of a particular hit Ricky Martin song? Uh, this one was big when we were still basically listening to pop music and when there was right, right at the kind of the end of the period when there was only enough pop music that pretty much everybody heard the same songs. True. Yeah. So 1999 was very late in that. And, you know, even though it was very much not in my wheelhouse of music I preferred, it was still on all the time. Catchy, catchy song. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. Perfectly adequate song. Um, but just if, if that were, if that song came out today, it would be, you know, in its own niche and I would not hear it because mm. it just, you don't hear, not everybody hears all the same music anymore. Like, I don't know any Bad Bunny songs, even yeah. though he's the biggest pop star in the world. Uh, but this one I remember, her lips are devil red and her skin the color mocha. Mm-hmm. So I said mocha. Yeah, pretty much same. Um, you know, I had to make sure I wasn't misremembering just because I I think I've misheard this lyric some of the time mm. as like uh, hair the color something because I thought somehow mocha was a better descriptor of a hair color I don't know mm. um, and so I kind of paused and thought about well what color is a mocha really I like to drink them um, but they're not uh, you know like a black coffee color per se, although I guess there are skin colors that color too. So um, I kind of just thought, did, could this be a skin color instead of a hair color? And thought, yeah, that, that would make sense too. So uh, I also put down Mocha. And that was correct. That was the song La Vida Loca or Livin' La Vida Loca. I don't know exactly what the title was. I believe it's Livin'. And, okay. um, and yeah, that's part of how you find your way into this answer as well. Mm -hmm. It's just the rhyme with question two asks us essentially what's the non-arabian peninsula member of opec original member of opec i should say right um and notes about how far away it is from those other ones uh 7500 miles which is pretty darn far even on a global scale um this is venezuela and i don't remember exactly where i learned about this it might have been as a result of a previous Learned League question. <laughs> um, it might have been reading headlines because Venezuela mm. has had a lot of very troubled governance over the past many decades. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I I don't know where I picked this up, but because of its being so far away and so, you know, different, I guess, from the other countries in OPEC, um, it's a sticky kind of fact that mm -hmm. once you learn it, probably not going to forget it because it's just you know it's not a name that's a lot like a lot of other country names it's unusual in its group and the particular group has a particular like function and place in society that is not you know duplicated by other things either so i don't know i guess just it's one of those memorable things uh, i put down venezuela it's entirely possible that at some point over the last few years, I've said to you that Venezuela is the weird outlying member of OPEC, and you might want to know that for Learned League. <laughs> uh, 
Possibly. Um, cause yeah, it's just one of those goofy things that, like you say, it's sticky. And once you, uh, once you find out about it, it can wedge itself into a crevice of your brain as why is Venezuela in OPEC? Like, right. If you, if you ever look up the, the map on Wikipedia, I, I didn't, uh, over the last couple of days, but I have previously and you know, they, they, how they've got their maps and it's just like a white and gray, uh, picture of the world. And then the individual countries are in their colors. And usually that's very helpful because it's like a kind of zoomed in on a region and you can see, Oh, okay. You know, these four <laughs> countries in, you know, the, the, uh, Arabian Gulf area. Uh, but you got to use the whole world for OPEC because <laughs> I think it currently includes Russia as well possibly Norway even. Um, but just having Venezuela in there means, you know, you can't zoom in at all. So oh, it's just, yeah. it's just this little tiny, uh, relatively tiny area in the, the Arabian Peninsula. And then, you know, part of this relatively small part of South America mm -hmm. is, is colored in on this map and it's just strikingly odd. Yeah. So, definitely. so yeah, I said Venezuela. And that was correct. Question three asks us for the first word spoken on the moon and notes that it's a particular location uttered by Neil Armstrong. The first word spoken by Armstrong. In oh, fact, excuse me. Sorry. Aldrin gave a, gave a quick command, but right. the, fir the, first, uh, uh, the first phrase I, I figured with all the caveat that, uh, you know, that it was a, specifically a location by Armstrong, I figured this is like houston the eagle has landed mm. um and really like that was kind of the second thing that came to mind because the first thing came to mind because whenever you start a sentence with houston these days <laughs> you end it with we have a problem or there's a problem or something mm -hmm. like that because mm -hmm. apollo 13 has uh very much replaced apollo 11 in kind of the recent popular memory slash memory sure um but yeah, I figured, yeah, this has got to be Houston, something about the eagle has landed or we have landed or something like that, that the location was he was communicating back to the home base on Earth. So I said Houston. Yeah, I had much the same line of thinking. Um, I just tried to think where would be a, I mean, the fact of it being a location is just a huge clue um, and really did think of sort of what's the classical, you know, place that astronauts are communicating with. And definitely Apollo 13 makes that very salient, uh, including the, the movie based on that incident, um, that it's Houston something or other. Um, and so I thought that had to be it. Um, I didn't really consider another location because I just thought that made the most logical sense. And if it wasn't the answer then I wasn't going to know the answer. Like, mm -hmm. you know, if I had thought through, well, is it the place they landed on the moon? I, mm -hmm. I didn't know what that was. If it's some other, you know, if it, I, I would think it was too early for it to be Cape Canaveral or whatever, or Cape mm -hmm. Kennedy. Um, so I was like, I, you know, I, I wouldn't have tried to apply that to uh, this uh, event mm -hmm. in space exploration history i guess yep um so i put down houston as well yep i believe they have always taken off from cape kennedy slash canaveral okay but then almost immediately communicate with houston ah once they're uh, once they're up in the air or beyond the air 
Okay. And Sea of Tranquility is where they landed. Oh, right. Tranquility Base, I've heard people say was the... Yes, that, that specifically refers possible. to their uh, their craft while it was on the surface, I believe. Yeah. Question four asks us for a French phrase that is associated with minimal government interference in the economy. Yeah, I figured this had to be laissez-faire, um, and I this may be one of the few learned league economics or history sorts of questions that I distinctly remember having learned in school specifically. Mm-hmm. We learned about laissez-faire economic policies sure. as hands-off policies in terms of, you know, whether the government should do things about the the economic marketplace, mm-hmm. and so I figured, you know, that's that's what it sounded like this was describing. You know, I've learned a little bit more about other economics and that kind of history since then. And so I could recognize that Adam Smith would be in that same vein. Um, and so, yeah, I figured this had to be laissez-faire. Same. That's, you know, when I, when I saw a French phrase translating to allow to do, I figured, oh, this has got to be laissez-faire. Mm-hmm. Oh, economists, economics, man, we're going to, yeah. Yeah, that's just one of the ones I I presume I learned it in a similar fashion. I don't know that sure. it ever even came up in my more recent graduate economics classes, mm. probably because my economics teachers were mostly communists. <laughs> not, not really, but very much not. In the most uni- delightful ways. Not University of Chicago libertarian yahoos, but mm-hmm. yeah. So if, if it did come up, it was probably derisively. <laughs> Certainly, yeah. So. And that was the correct answer. And in fairness to them as well, it's sort of a non-policy. It's a policy <laughs> yeah. of not having Fair. policy. Fair. So, you know, how much does he have to actually describe it? Question five asks us about a uh, monopoly feud between the companies Donruss, Fleer, and Tops. And asks, what product were they in the market of? Uh, Tops makes sports collectible cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, Donruss and Fleer, I believe, are still also in the uh, in that market. Um, Upper Deck is kind of a big name nowadays, but didn't exist back then, I don't think. Ah. Um, but this was specifically about baseball cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I thought for a while on whether to say sports cards or collectible cards or something like mm-hmm. that, athlete mm-hmm. card. Um, I forget there was another term that I thought of that I didn't end up using. I finally just went with baseball cards mm-hmm. because I, as I read it and you know, it said a particular market and in particular in 1981. And I thought at that point, I think it was, it was just baseball cards and that these companies were trying to uh, essentially sever the agreement that Major League Baseball specifically had with Tops mm. that only or Major League Baseball or possibly the Players Association, one of those, uh, the the Tops paid them to only allow uh, their uh, their players to kind of participate in the Tops market, and I think maybe the statistics are technically copyright or something like that. So so there was something beyond just. You know, uh, these other companies being able to pull a picture out of a newspaper or buy it from some photographer and then slap the statistics on the other side and have baseball cards. Uh, but yeah, I was, I, I don't know whether there were 
football, basketball, hockey cards, that sort of thing at that point. Um, but if they were, they were a, a paltry amount compared to baseball cards, which have a long history and are real easy to just make because statistics are so important to baseball uh, as opposed to the, 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 the statisticness of those other sports hadn't really gelled at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just figured, yeah, I think more pre- most precisely it was about baseball cards at that time. It wasn't just about sports cards. So I said baseball cards specifically. Yeah, I, I had a similar um, thought process where I knew that tops were in the business of sports cards and kind of most particularly baseball cards. Um, you know, kind of this is just ripped from our childhood, really, because I felt like the 1980s, especially the early 80s, kind of made a big deal out of them, probably late 70s, too. Um and so it kind of makes sense these other companies would be like, hey, we should be able to get on this market too because mm-hmm. it was uh, a big enough business. And I thought about whether to put down, um, you know, sports cards, collectible cards, bubblegum cards. Um, but I really thought that Tops was pretty strongly associated with baseball cards, in my mind at least. Um and uh, so I, I figured that probably would be accepted, whereas I wasn't sure about the others. You know, if I just put down sports cards, is that a little too generic? Collectible cards seems broad as well, um, and maybe kind of mostly in retrospect, because today there are Pokemon cards, and there's just all sorts of types of collectible cards that you can collect mm-hmm. um, that are legitimately large markets. Yep. Um and so uh, I sort of hesitantly put down baseball cards, hmm. um, just thinking that was probably, for that period of time, it, it seemed to make the most sense for it. Um, and uh, it was, I think we talked about how bubblegum was, in fact, pretty integral mm-hmm. to these cards at the time. Yes. So. The, the argument that they made... The, that's correct. Baseball cards is the correct answer. Yes. Uh, but yes, uh, I looked at it afterwards and um, the the argument in, that Donruss and Fleer presented was in fact that the monopoly was harming their bubblegum business. Right. Because they could not put baseball cards in their packages. Yeah. Uh, and it was overturned like another year later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by that point, Donruss and Fleer were able to make baseball cards, so they just stopped putting gum in there in their mm-hmm. packages because mm-hmm. who cared? They weren't really selling the gum after all, and everybody yeah, knew it, and yeah. that's why it eventually got overturned anyway. But by that point, uh, everyone involved had realized that there was tons of money to be made in this market that was not being made, and that the rising tide would lift all boats. And right. In fact, that's what happened. Indeed. Question six asks us for the lyricist of Showboat, South Pacific, The Sound of Music, and others. Yeah, so this one was an interesting one for me because I initially figured, you know, the, I know these, at least the latter two of these musicals were by like a music and lyrics kind of team. Mm. Um, that, that it wasn't like this person also wrote the music. Um, and I mean, the question really implies that pretty strongly, like mm. someone else must have written the music if the question says this person lyrics. wrote the lyrics yeah. specifically. Um, 
And so uh, the first pair to come to mind was Lerner and Lowe. Mm. And I thought of those two that I thought, I think it's Alan Lerner is the um, lyricist of the two. That was my thinking. That's not what I'm <laughs> certain is true even now. Um, and so I had that in the answer box for a while. Um, but then I kind of, in trying to decide, well, you know, am I sure that Lerner is the right person to put in? I thought about how musicals are typically sort of credited in terms of how are those credits laid out. And it feels like the music person always comes first, like music and lyrics in that order. Um, and so I thought, well, what if it's, you know, what if it's low? What if I'm getting that mixed up in my head? Um, and then I kind of, you know, thinking laterally, I guess, um, kind of flashed on, like I could picture either a movie poster or a theater poster for South Pacific. And I just suddenly thought, oh no, this is Rogers and Hammerstein. Um, and so now I have to figure out which of those is the lyricist. <laughs> um, cause I couldn't, you know, it, it, with the same kind of logic, I thought, well, it's music and lyrics, right? So music by Rogers, lyrics by Hammerstein, I guess, um, is what I think is likely to be the case. Um, and so with that kind of chain of, uh, as it turns out, rather specious logic, <laughs> uh, working for me, I went ahead and put down Hammerstein. Uh, so I immediately thought it was Rogers and Hammerstein. Uh -huh. uh, I don't know why, but that just for some reason locked <laughs> in on me. So I just had to figure out, okay, which one's the musician, which one's the lyricist. And I thought, okay, music and lyrics, Rogers and Hammerstein must be Hammerstein. But then I thought, no, because I'm getting the term, when I think of the term music and lyrics, I remember there was a Drew Barrymore, Hugh Grant rom-com about oh, yeah. that. And although I don't know that I've ever actually seen the movie, I do know for a fact that it was about them trying to write a song, mm -hmm. a pop song, not for a musical, not writing a musical. Right. So, okay, maybe music and lyrics doesn't apply like maybe that's not the formula that the oh. first one is you know learner and low learner must be the musician low uh rogers and hammerstein gilbert and sullivan etc uh so i had to come up with something else and uh once again the dumbest possible reason for my knowing <laughs> anything in learned league uh the hammerstein ballroom in new york city exists it is a place that has hosted some uh fairly famous wrestling cards over the years <laughs> and the fact that it exists and is named the Hammerstein Ballroom made me think, oh, Hammerstein must be the musician. Because uh. why would you name a ballroom after a lyricist? <laughs> there you go. Clearly, Rogers was the lyricist. Mm. And that's, that's what I answered. Down. But it was Hammerstein. It was Hammerstein. Yeah. And here's the thing. Although you were correct with music and lyrics, that is not uh, consistent. No. Because in Gilbert and Sullivan... Sullivan was the lyricist. Uh, or was, was, the, the lyricist. was the musician, yes. Uh, in Lerner and Lowe, Lowe mm -hmm. was the musician. Right. Uh, in Candor and Ebb, however, ah. Candor was the musician. Okay. So it's not like they were the only ones who flipped it. No. It's just kind of random. Right. It, it seems to be, you know, we discussed it a little bit mm -hmm. at another time, that it's just probably what sounds catchiest. Yeah. Because Hammerstein and Rogers doesn't quite trip off the tongue the same Entirely way. Entirely possible, because Hammerstein was the elder. Mm -hmm. He was the one, I believe, with kind of the more 
uh, the more oomph in the industry because he was mm. he was a nepo baby for lack of a better term, <laughs> you know, an incredibly talented one we shall say. But sure, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan, I have no idea how they figured it out. Uh, although I'm certain that it was acrimonious. <laughs> uh, fun fun fact: they hated each other. Yes, absolutely. I think you talk to me about there, this. There was, I think, for the majority of their career, they would not be in the same room together. Yeah, they simply mailed back back when that was the equivalent <laughs> of email. It, you know, passed quickly enough. They mailed stuff back and forth, and that's how they worked on it. And they knew that uh -huh. they uh -huh. were great together, and that they were cursed to always be remembered together. But they could not stand each other. Wow. Yeah, and I retrospectively. Um, figured out that I probably landed on this because of, of a general impression um, still left in my brain from when I read up on Stephen Sondheim, because probably learnedly related as well, um, just wanted to kind of know about more of his career. He comes up in trivia a lot. Mm -hmm. um, lots of trivia nerds are also theater nerds, and it's kind of the perfect, you know, combination and Oscar Hammerstein was his mentor mm -hmm. for, you know, several years. Yep. Um, and so that is probably where I got the association of him being a lyricist mm. because Sondheim writes both music and lyrics, or at least has. Not he, in every show he, that he's he worked on, to it. but he mm. um, is famously a lyrics heavy mm -hmm. musical theater, you know, composer and writer, like mm. all his... All his lyrics are very dense and, you know, kind of uh, um, full of wordplay and that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. yeah, that was how he got his start. His first couple mm -hmm. few uh, famous shows, including West Side Story, he was the lyricist. Right. And then once he'd kind of established himself, he decided, okay, now I can write music too. Yes. And could. And did very well for right. himself for many years after. Certainly did. So that means you bearded it. I did. Well done. That's exciting. I coin flipped myself out of one. Oh, that's yeah, I, I logicked myself out of it. I, I can't even say that was a coin flip because I was, <laughs> I, I believed that I would uh, that I had outsmarted the question. I had figured out because why would you name a ballroom after a lyricist? <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean you don't need lyrics to dance to things. Yeah, the reason is that he actually built the building. Oh, and it's it, it was like the the uh, Hammerstein theater or performance space or something like that. The ballroom is just part of it. Ah, okay. Yeah, I guess that makes sense too. Yep. So, yeah, I I was pretty thrilled with this beer in the sense that uh, I wasn't at all certain of the Hammerstein question, nor the Houston um, and baseball cards was a little tentative too. So, mm -hmm. uh, I was glad that all my uh, slightly educated guesses paid off. Um, and, uh, of course I read today that it was also like the easiest match day of the season. So uh, eh. I can believe I, it. Um, I did get a win out of it, which was nice okay. though. So, uh, I'll take it. I got a defensive loss. Oh, shucks. Yeah. Happens. Yep. So, well, that's it for today. Tune in tomorrow for more post-game analysis, although you're going to tune in yeah, kind of be, the same day. It'll be tomorrow. I'll, I'll upload this one quick. Yeah. Um, and then uh, whenever you have a spare moment, follow Learned Lag with all the vowels now on Blue Sky. <laughs> and remember... Don't forfeit. Don't cheat.